This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, getting ready for my holidays. Uh, I'm off next week, but don't worry, Luke Jones is going to be in the hot seat looking after you. Nice episode to end the week on, though. Uh, Coming up, just fascinating interview with Andrew Marr. Uh, He's been a journalist now for 40 years. Many of those stalking the corridors of power, and he's got a great new book out uh, called The Elizabethans. Uh, which is all about the age we are living through now. So it's a great interview with Andrew Mark coming up. But first, let's have our columnist panel today with Melanie Reid from The Times and The Daily Mail's John Stevens. Now, uh, it's, I want to talk about the fact that we appear to be uh, now guinea pigs. If it wasn't bad enough that we're trying to work out what's going on with coronavirus in England, it turns out that we are being watched around the world. Um, uh, uh, other countries waiting to see uh, what uh, we should do, uh, what they should do based on what's happening here. U.S. State Department issuing its highest level warning against going to uh, against uh, Britain on Monday, urging people not to travel. Uh, the Delta variant uh, is the reason to blame. Uh, before I speak to you, John, in fact, let's because you, Melody, you're in Scotland, so to some extent, you are you are one of the people looking at us as guinea pigs. How is it being viewed in Scotland? <laughs> well, uh, with with a certain sense of detachment, I think. Um, but, you know, it, it's always nice not to be the person carrying or, or to be the canary in the coal mine, isn't it? Um, it I, 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 I think it's, there's a touch of um, sitting, it's, it's like at school where you, where you sit back and you, you, dare, you dare the city boys to go and do something just to see whether they'll get away with it or not. Uh, and and there is that sense of ooh, let's see what's going to happen. Um, and I personally would love to know what professors Witty and Valance are muttering in in darkened rooms. <laughs> when we all when we all talk. John, what is your sense of what uh, Witty and Valance are muttering in, in darkened rooms, and whether or not the government is particularly comfortable being being the world's guinea pig? I don't think the world uh, the government wants to be the world's guinea pig, to be honest. But I think we'd have to kind of have a bit of caution that even though it was branded as the big freedom day, if you actually go around, you know, on the trains, on the tubes, I was surprised how many people are still wearing masks. Obviously, it seems like the world and its wife are having to isolate at home. So I'm not quite sure it's the big bang opening that was expected. And I'm sure the pictures of people clubbing in GAY are midnight on Monday morning have gone around the world but whether actually you've got loads and loads of people going out going crazy enjoying the freedom I'm not quite so sure. 
and actually, I mean, particularly on the American thing, partly because it's done uh, by state by state, mostly rather than you know edict from the White House. But I mean, large parts of America have no uh, restrictions. You know, stay at home orders have been lifted. Uh, you know, retail's opening up. You don't need to wear masks. Um, uh, and that's happening right across the. So, so I'm not entirely sure that the U, uh, that England is necessarily uh, completely out on a limb here. How, in in terms of how, um, are people in Scotland itching to have their freedom, um, Melanie, or, or or quite happy to let others go first? I get the impression the Scots are pretty are pretty cautious. I think uh, I think there there is there is a lot more sort of of, of canniness up here. A lot more a lot more wariness. Uh, there's just not the the same gung ho thing going on. I mean, I don't even think we've got as many flights leaving the country on holiday and things. Um, Nicola Sturgeon has always played the. She's always preferred to to um, to let to let the English uh, make the mistakes first. I think um, maybe she's right, maybe she's wrong, but it's 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 a very tough one. I I personally it. it it worries me slightly because I, I kind of feel that the politics, it, it, it's, it's that, it's slightly Brexity. It's that sort of Britain's a world leader, you know, it's gone, gone to our heads a bit. Um, it's all a bit Borisy. It's all a bit Borisy, isn't it? It's all kind of a although, bit rash chaps. Although, I think although the, it is interesting that the Nicola Sturge's approach has basically been to tut it anything Boris Johnson does and then basically do the same thing a couple of weeks later uh, with, yeah. with much the same result, yeah. it has to be said. Yeah. Uh, so, sorry, John, I cut you off. Well, no, that was exactly the point I was going to make, that Nicola Sturgeon's done quite well at painting herself as being much more cautious than gun-ho Boris. But as you say, she's basically done the same things, but a week or so later with a different name. So they look slightly different, but they've basically been the same. Um, it's, poli- it's politics, isn't it? I mean, that is so, politics. It's, so, that is it's actually quite funny. It really is quite funny watching the, the Scottish nationalists um, sort of fencing with uh, fencing with uh, Westminster over COVID. Uh, and actually, on the politics, John, we've seen a little bit of now. I think there's a Salvation poll this week, which saw the Tory lead over Labour now quite a bit. I think there are others uh, showing similar trends. Do you think that uh, the, the public might be starting to think that this is a mistake? Um, although, uh, you know, our focus group that we had earlier this week showed that although the polls show everyone loves the restrictions, speak to them in a focus group. <laughs> Nobody seems to be following them at all, uh, including my favourite, the woman who, who who has got the app, but she turns it off when she leaves the house and then turns it back on when she gets home again. Um, <laughs> Uh, do you think, you know, the wobble with the self-isolation pilot and all that at the weekend, should, should Boris Johnson be worried about the politics of all this? Well, I think, I mean, it has been quite confusing what the message has been. So, you know, saying we're going to get rid of the legal restrictions and masks and then advising people to wear masks and saying, oh, nightclubs can open, anyone can just turn up and then saying, oh, but in September you'll have to be jabbed to go. That I'm not sure that gives the impression quite of the government knowing exactly what they're going to do. But on the other side, I mean... Labour haven't really set out a clear position of what they would do differently, which I think is slightly difficult for them. So on vaccine passports, they say that they're broadly against them. But I think when it came down to a vote or if it does come down to one in the autumn, they probably will back it if there's an option to get tested instead of having a vaccine. And I think, you know, Keir Starmer's, you know, struggling with setting out a different vision of what he could do differently has meant that, you know, I'm not sure there's masses of people 
turning away from the government and turning towards Labour. Yeah, no, I thought it was what was striking was Keir Starmer had a had better theatre at PMQs on Wednesday, mainly because he just kept laughing at all his own jokes. But actually, it was, <laughs> his position seemed to be. Uh, you told us it was Freedom Day. It's not Freedom Day at all. Why are you unlocking? Why aren't you unlocking? Uh, you know, we want... <laughs> uh, take off your mask. Put your mask on. And, uh, and uh, people shouldn't be... It's terrible, all these people isolating. Why aren't more people isolating? Why aren't we locking down? Why aren't we opening up? And I suppose that's partly what oppositions can do. But I suppose, it, yeah, it's good theatre in, the in uh, PMQs that... Maybe it doesn't make much impact. Well, we'll see if there are polls coming out over the weekend too. Uh, now, I want to talk to you because in about, what, it's about an hour's time, the opening ceremony of the long-awaited 2020 Olympics uh, starts. Um, it's all going to be a bit sombre, you know, one solitary torch possibly, uh, and not many uh, other people. Um, Melanie, are you excited about the Olympics and Paralympics? I, I wish I could be. I wish I could be. I uh, And, you know, I feel the, the opening ceremonies... They're always so weird and puzzling and over the top and um, hard to watch. I find always, do, do you not always find them faintly embarrassing? And this is going to be <laughs> even worse because there's going to be nobody watching. Um, it, it's it's this sort of pointless extravaganza and there isn't even going to be a few thousand people there clapping politely. I, I think it rather symbolizes the the misery for quite a lot of the uh, of of the you know these fantastic beautiful young athletes who've worked so hard and they're going to be performing in in emptiness uh, but i mean when we've sp spoken to some of them on the on the show the last few weeks they're uh, the sensible ones it seems have sort of got themselves in a mindset of it's not a question of spectators or no spectators it's olympics or no olympics uh, and you know, Olympics with no spectators is is the best that they could do, and they've been training for it for a long time, and they just want to get out and do it. Um, John, have you got you got your Olympics wall chart ready to go? I haven't, but it's you know, after practicing through um, the Euros at trying to understand the sport, I don't really understand, but being very enthusiastic about it, I am ready to <laughs> kind of take on enthusiasm for random sports over the next few weeks. But, I mean, I totally disagree with Melanie. I think as soon as the sports start, people will forget all the weirdness. Once we get used to watching sports with no one clapping, I think it will become quite normal. And if you're an athlete and you win a gold, I think you'll be quite happy that you've won a gold. I don't think you'll really care whether it's a Corona Games or not. And that's, I mean, Melanie, when sort of football matches and rugby matches and things earlier in the year when they had no crowds and they put the fake crowd noise on you soon sort of get in the swing of it and you, even though you know it's fake you just you know you can still enjoy it matt when have you ever competed in the olympics how do you know that <laughs> well how rude how rude <laughs> no i meant i meant for, as a viewer i meant as a spectator not for the not necessarily for the athletes but as a as a as a, as a viewer at home uh we'll still get in the swing of it won't we is it all a bit like i mean obviously it's on a far worse scale with uh, coronavirus but at this point before London 2012 it was all about how the army were being called in G4S was a mess the village wasn't finished it's all gonna be a disaster and Danny Boyle comes along the amazing opening ceremony and suddenly it was going to be an absolute triumph and we loved it yeah 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 I, I yes from from the spectator's point of view but I I just keep thinking about about some of these some of these athletes I mean it's fine for the sailors who, who, you know, they don't have to be <laughs> <laughs> the sailors or the cross-country horse riders. They don't even down whether there's any people watching them or not. But, I mean, for, for the 
for the ones who the glory sports, the track and field, the marathon, you know, there'd be no, there's, there's none of that kind of aura of, of to lift them up and help them perform, and there's no celebrating or hugging or or any of the kind of extra extracurricular activity that that you get in the in the athletes' villages. I mean, it's 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 all banned. It's all banned. They're, they're all going to be little islands of beauty, walking around these beautiful bodies with. Oh, I don't know. Uh, we can enjoy it, but I feel so. I feel that they will, in later years. I'm sorry to say, I, I'm. I fear they'll feel a bit cheated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just because, obviously, well, you write your column every week uh, in the Times magazine about your disability. How do you feel about the Paralympics? And uh, I mean, I think actually that maybe it was a thing that happened in 2012. It did get sort of almost parity in terms of the amount of public interest in it. And, you know, everybody, we, have a, we end up having a discussion about disability once every four, in this case, five years. It was extraordinary. And that, that is also when the Channel 4 uh, programme started the, the, you know, what is it, the last leg or whatever, the, the, yeah. the you know, the... the I, I remember the. I was at the opening ceremony of the Paralympics, and you know it was wonderful. They were sort of tossing, they they, they were tossing um, uh, NHS walking sticks up in the air, and it was it was surreal to the point of uh, it was bizarrely wonderful, and and it was a very very vivid event. And of course, it's never been so since. But I think it did help in the long run. I think it. It did certainly uh, tweak the dial on attitudes to physical disability in in Britain. Well, yeah, that's good. I think I think you're right. And the fact that Channel Four, the fact the last leg has kept going ever since, and they're you know they're going to yeah, give it the full yeah. works again this time. And I also wonder, I don't know what you think, John. The fact that Channel Four show the Paralympics means that they really do give it some well. It's not an afterthought. Uh, coming after the Olympics, you know, they 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 really do do it properly. I would definitely agree. If it was on the BBC, you'd imagine it would be some stuff BBC One and on some random channel that you struggled to find on your box. So obviously, they've got a lot of pride in it because that's their only kind of that's their only taste of the Olympics. Well, let's focus on the positive. Let's. Focus. It's all going to be fine, Melanie. Um, we'll all cheer them on. Uh, yeah, we will. We will <laughs> get your rattles out. <laughs> Lovely stuff, John Stevens and Melanie Reed. Then, of course, you can read Melanie's column in the Times every Saturday. In the Times magazine, you can also read my column in the Times on a Saturday too. Uh, just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my interview with Andrew Ma. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
Andrew Marr has been a fixture on British television. Well, he's been a political journalist for some 40 years. First started working as uh, for the Scotsman back in the early 1980s. Then he became a political journalist working through The Economist, where he, uh, then political editor of The Independent, editor, columnist for The Observer. Then he moved to broadcast, where, of course, he was political editor of the BBC. Then in 2005, he filled the hard-to-fill shoes of uh, David Frost, started presenting his own Sunday morning political show, which, of course, is still running today, and sees him interviews uh, top politicians. Well, he's asking them the questions, whether or not the answer is, uh, is another question altogether. But alongside all of that, annoyingly talented, is also a prolific, prolific writer, uh, several books on the history of Britain. Uh, his latest, The Elizabethans, is out now in paper, and he's a painter and everything else besides. And also, just a lovely man. And he joins me now. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Matt. And what can I say after that? I also write symphonies and string quartets. <laughs> now, um, I've got a confession to make, Andrew, because I can, I can see your face uh, most days uh, because on my desk at home, never very far from me, is a copy of your book. We will talk about the Elizabethans. There's a copy of your book, My Trade, which I first read, I think it must be 16 years ago, when I was about to start working in the press gallery in Westminster. I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, I think it hadn't long come out in paperback. So it was sort of, uh, it seemed uh, serendipitous uh, that it was basically a guy, it was a history of, of political, it was both your history in journalism, but also a history of political journalism. And just how much the press gallery had changed, but also hadn't really. And it's a weird institution, isn't it? The press gallery, uh, lobby journalists, they're a weird bunch in a weird institution, which despite everything else in the outside world, doesn't change very much. It doesn't change very much, and it's really weird. You're quite right. It's got a very, very rigid kind of class hierarchy of lobby journalists and non-lobby journalists, correspondents and uh, parliamentary correspondents, where I, I started off literally just sitting in the press gallery for sometimes 12, 14 hours a day uh, doing shorthand notes, because when I started, the Scotsman had a great, it was then a broadsheet, a huge broadsheet page, maybe sometimes two broadsheet pages, of parliamentary reports and every Scottish MP who said anything in the Chamber of the House of Commons or in the select committees or any other committees, however banal, would expect it to be reported in the Scotsman the next day and you got into a huge amount of trouble if it wasn't there or if it was inaccurate. So I just spent days and days and days and days and days perfecting my shorthand, scribbling away these speeches and then you were desperate to get, as it were, your how, what, 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 what was your word count? What words? Because what, what, I, I mean, I got a hundred words and actually I did exactly the same thing. Although we were allowed tape recorders, you we were encouraged when I was away for the press association to, to get it all down in shorthand. What, 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 what was your top speed? Uh, probably about 130, something like that. T-line, which is quite fast for T-line, 130, 140, that kind of thing. Um, it's very that often the same words. Of that, that is pretty It helps. Yes, exactly. You could just get, you could literally just get shortcuts for the same stuff that politicians come out uh, come out with all the time. The thing that struck me because I, I was coming back through your your book and you were basically chronicling that people like uh, you and I who spent a time writing down everything that MPs said in the Commons, that that those roles just disappeared. The newspapers stopped running uh, columns and columns and columns of what was happening in the House of, uh, in the Commons chamber itself because people were more interested in the the lobby journalism the. The gossip, the uh, cabinet yeah, rows, the, the ministerial announcements, all that sort of thing. And I just wondered, actually, um, as I was thinking about it, in the 10, 15 years uh, since I first read your book, 
Has social media changed that, do you think? Social media clips of pretty unknown MPs in the House of Commons chamber um, now go viral. We've seen it in Dawn Butler just overnight um, in a way that they probably would never have done uh, before. And I just wonder, do you think that, that so one, <laughs> there aren't many, but one of the upsides of social media might be that more people see a bit more of what actually goes on in the chamber? I think the social media side is actually really useful in that. Um, you get lots of clips. I mean, somebody like Dawn Butler accusing the Prime Minister of lying and being kicked out for refusing to apologise for that or withdraw her words. That would always have been a big story, I think. Um, but, you know, the quirky things, some of the funny maiden speeches, that kind of thing, are beginning to appear on Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram and so on. That's really, really good, because I always worried that when journalists stopped reporting actually what was said in detail in the House of Commons, democracy was kind of undermined a bit. And, you know, we're talking on Times Radio and the pivotal decision was actually taken by a former editor of The Times, Simon Jenkins. I think he was the first person to say The Times is no longer going to carry a kind of gavel to gavel, word by word, paragraph by paragraph account of British politics in that old fashioned way. And at the time, everybody breathed a sigh of relief, except possibly the more obscure MPs. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because they didn't have to uh, carry it as much. Uh, do you, I mean, I, I suppose that the, the downside of the social media thing is we see it particularly at PMQs that quite often it's basically just been used as a platform uh, to deliver a soundbite. It's not really, the quality of debate hasn't necessarily uh, risen. It's PMQs in particular is often now just, uh, just people filming their own social media clips entirely independently of the other person. You know, so Keir Starmer's looking for his clip, Boris Johnson's looking for his, and there's not very much interaction or attempt to really engage or answer the questions. Matt, you know, there's obviously always been grandstanding going on in the House of Commons, but I think what's quite disturbing <laughs> at the is, the, is the extent to which people simply talk across the issue. I mean, you, uh, earlier on, you mentioned um, my Sunday morning show and the difficulty of getting people to answer questions. But if you look at Prime Minister's questions... And the times in which, as it were, Keir Starmer asks Boris Johnson something, and Boris Johnson then says exactly what he wanted to say in the first place, the clip for the evening news, whatever it might be. They talk across each other. It isn't really a conversation where somebody puts a proposition and somebody else responds to it with another fact or whatever. Or a lot of the time it isn't like that. And you slightly wonder, what is the point? Is that, is that, is, <laughs> I was going to ask you about that, because obviously it's 60 years of uh, Prime Minister's questions was marked this week. And we... Uh, we recreated the very first PMQs at la- on the show last Friday. Uh, and the, the, the astonishing thing with that was it wasn't very exciting, but Howard McMillan uh, did sort of attempt to engage in the question, albeit not necessarily giving people the answers that they wanted. Or are we just, is it always the case that politicians have been um, uh, reluctant to do that? Well, I mean, it's very easy to think that the things are uniquely bad at the moment. But I remember, because I, as you so kindly and rightly pointed out early on, <laughs> I was very, very old. I mean, I can remember Neil Kinnock asking Margaret Thatcher perfectly reasonable, if sort of aggressively ideological questions, Prime Minister question, I mean, being simply swatted aside as she went on one of her speeches about the evils of socialism and the honourable gentleman's many failures and so on. So it's always gone on. And I can remember... Uh, Tony Blair coming in and again treating uh, backbench Tory MPs with something pretty close to disdain as they tried to pin him down on the various ups and downs of that government. So it has always happened. But I say again, you know, if there isn't some kind of obligation felt by ministers to respond to the actual question, then quite quickly people turn off entirely and the whole thing becomes pointless. If when X 
asks Minister Y, did you or did you not uh, authorise this? And simply gets a, a reply about the state of the weather and how well done, how well the English football team has done. Then the whole thing becomes utterly farcical and pointless. I wonder what impact you think the past 18 months has had, because to some extent, a lot of the counts we're talking about, I mean, certainly aside from PMQs, but sort of cabinet ministers, junior ministers, backbenchers, uh, you and I are the oddities in that we would follow them closely and noticed if they were at the dispatch box and didn't answer or, you know, on a quiet Sunday, you know, whether they answered uh, the questions on your, your show. But actually the last 18 months, you know, sitting down at five o'clock every day and watching the press conferences with senior ministers, taking questions at press conferences and not answering them, the entire country was doing that. So do you think that this has had a sort of a, a more severe impact on the public's impression of politicians because because politics for the last 18 months has been a matter of life and death and they've been really engaged in what ministers and uh, the Prime Minister has been saying in a way that in normal times perhaps they haven't been. I think that's absolutely right, Matt, and I think everybody wants to know exactly what's going on in terms of vaccine efficacy or um, the epidemiological effects of this or that. And ministers, as you say, who don't answer the questions, um, absolutely infuriate the public. I have to, I'll say something kind of unusual and controversial. Uh, Matt Hancock came onto my show probably more often than any other minister. And sure, there was dodges and weaves and evasions and so forth. But he basically tried to answer the hard questions and basically tried to come in every Sunday with something to say that was, that was relevant uh, to, to people watching. And we had a very, very strange experience. I don't know if you've had the same on Times Radio. But we had on the Sunday show, very strange experience, where at the beginning of the epidemic, my editor was saying, you know, we really ought to get some of the scientists themselves on. We really get, ought to get the, the Pfizer, Moderna people on to explain how their RNA vaccine works. And we need to get the latest from the epidemiologists advising the, uh, the government. And I was saying, do you think people are going to sit there for sort of 20 minutes? And, <laughs> and the numbers went up and up and up. And I think nine of the 10 most popular programs I've ever done since 2005 were during the, the, the pandemic. Not because I was particularly interesting, not I dare I say it because the politicians were particularly interesting, but because people were tuning in to hear scientists answering as accurately and honestly as they could important questions. Who'd have thunk it? And how uh, have you had to sort of change your, your style? I haven't done it for so long. And, you know, so well, Tony Blair was Prime Minister when you started doing the, the Sunday morning show. Uh, do, you do you try to show... I mean, I suppose it's difficult for you to say, well, you've not answered that question, uh, but we'll move on. I mean, how far can you go uh, in changing the way that you're approaching the interview to, to make clear that, that duff answers aren't the fault of you asking duff questions? No, they are sometimes, of course. Um, but <laughs> yeah, what I try to do is if, if I ask a serious and important question and it's just evaded or evo avoided, I will try and stop the, the politician and say, look, that wasn't the question I asked. The question I asked you was this. And if they do it again, then I might a third time say, well, uh, that wasn't the question I asked. I asked a really specific question and it's an important question for this reason. Um, you know, but people will have noticed you refuse to answer it and they look a bit cross, and then you move on. I don't think there's any point in doing it 12 or 13 times, um, if you can avoid it, because um, the audience just starts to get uh, irritated beyond belief and eventually switch off. You, you say, you haven't answered this. This was really important. You should have answered it. And then you move on. And they take a political hit for that, I think. 
Yeah, we all yeah we all need to remember that journalists are only slightly less uh, despised than politicians sometimes. So you know we, <laughs> we need to be careful about how much to uh, to do that stuff. And how difficult is for you? Uh, the BBC is under a huge amount of political uh, pressure. Uh, there's been you know big rows this week about whether or not uh, the journalist Jess Brammer should join as the head of news. Emily Maitlis yesterday, your colleague at Newsnight presenter, so she looked like she was accusing the BBC of caving into pressure from Downing Street after she was uh, told off for opening Newsnight with a monologue about Dominic Cummings breaking the rules. Are you worried about BBC impartiality? How easy is it to be a a political journalist on the BBC right now? It's really really hard. I think um, I remind myself before every show starts in the sort of five minutes before we're on air that the people watching are passionate UKIP voting Brexiteers, are hard left supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, are everything in between. And they've all paid their license fees, or most of them have, and they all deserve, um, as it were, to think that the programme is a decent, fair treatment for everybody. But it's really difficult because, as you know, Matt, the country has become so angry and so divided um, everybody seems to be shouting at everybody else lots of us have, have retreated into political tribes and are engaged in kind of warfare from the trenches and to be the the neutral platform on which you can have a kind of civilized discussion conversation across the divide becomes increasingly difficult and uh, so, I mean, you've got politicians who won't answer the question. You're getting grief uh, from Downing Street. You get grief from the BBC. How long will you keep doing the Andrew Marr show, do you think? Well, probably as long as they will have me. But that may, may, may not be for very long. I just don't know. <laughs> I've signed another contract for a couple of years um, and I'm still enjoying it, despite everything. Um, and our numbers are still very good. So if they do it by the numbers, they'll keep going. But who knows? Um, I'm very aware I've been doing the job a long time. I don't think anyone's had their own show for as long as I have. Uh, it's, I think it's 16 years now. Um, and, you know, we're all journalistically mortal, uh, like politically mortal. So I just don't know. <laughs> so instant- yeah, the, one, the, one, the one good thing about being a political journalist is you do tend to last longer than, uh, than the people you're writing about, which is always a good reminder when you see people like Dominic Cummings and that sort of thing. What did you make of that Dominic Cummings interview this week? I thought it was brilliantly handled by Laura. Um, I thought she was, as it were, sympathetic enough to draw out from him the most interesting and extreme things he could say. Um, and she did push back properly about, uh, you were responsible for this. You know, there was a moment when she said, can you hear what you're saying at this, this stage? So I thought it was a great scoop on her behalf. And it's, it's really interesting. He has moved from being, as it were, the, the ultimate hate figure for Remainers and anti-Boris Johnson conservatives and all the rest of it to, as it were, their pin-up star, because what he says about... That was amazing. I can't remember ever. Yeah, I can't remember ever. uh, Every prime minister suffers from leaks and criticism the whole time, but I can't remember ever anybody who was so close to the centre of things as Dominic Cummings, giving such a withering and closely detailed and backed-up analysis of what went wrong so soon afterwards... And I think this is unique in British politics, and I'm gripped by it, as I think you are and almost everybody watching politics is. Yeah, when you think that the people who worked around, uh, people who are very close to Margaret Thatcher, very close to Tony Blair, you know, you're Alistair Campbell's, they're still loyally defending them to this day. Never mind, you know, 
uh, going after them after after a couple of weeks. Um, Andrew, I want to talk to you about uh, the Elizabethans, your book, because I think it's really fascinating, and and so many people in it have done even more to try to establish their place in history in recent weeks. Andrew, your new book, uh, which is out in paperback now, Elizabethans: A History of How Modern Britain Was Forged, is sort. It's about the people who are around us right now. It's the sort of first draft of of the it sort really of really is. It's the, the next, change. Yeah. Yeah. And so who who I mean it's it's there's something for everyone in there, from you know, it's Marcus Rashford to Meghan Markle to even some of the medical staff, you know, but right up today with the medical staff who who dealt with COVID. Um how do you go about picking all of those people? So I was thinking, what are the big um as it were social and mental changes? This starts uh, I wanted to write about Britain during the Queen's reign, because it's seventy years or so, so which is you know the traditional six score years and ten of a human life. And it means that most people reading the book will remember quite a lot of what's happened in the book. Um, and I was thinking that if you took a bunch of us today, if you could have uh, assembled um, 30 or 40 random people from outside um, your offices um, on the London South Bank, and you teletransported them back to 1953, obviously they would look very different to, to the people who were there at the beginning of the Queen's reign in terms of their clothes. Did they have moustaches? Did they flaunt tattoos? How fat were they? All those kind of things. And obviously we're also surrounded by totally different technologies from you know our iPhones to our swollen vehicles to our car, all that stuff. But I thought the biggest changes of all are the mental changes. Um, what we think about gender, race, sexuality, empire, authority, work, that's the really big revolution that's changed. Therefore, who are the people who brought about those changes in our thinking and the way we, we see the world? And that can be technologists and business people and scientists, but it's also social change makers. It's everyone you know, as it were, from uh, Jan Morris, which is a transgender story coming from the Times, which starts the, the book, um, because on Coronation Day, you would think that was the only story in town. Young new queen becomes is, is crowned. But in fact, the Times has the scoop of the conquest of Everest. And it's got the scoop because of an incredibly intrepid, daring, dashing young um, ex-military foreign correspondent called James Morris. Um, and he works out this very clever system to get the scoop back to London from the top of Everest without any of the Times' rivals, nationally or internationally, finding out what was going on. And James Morris, uh, not that long afterwards, starts the journey to become Jan Morris, because from a very, very early age, James Morris was sure that he had been born in the wrong body and ought to have been a woman. And he goes through awful, very, very dramatic um, surgery in Casablanca and takes some what were at the time very dangerous drugs to transition to being woman to becoming Jan Morris and as Jan Morris of course becomes an incredibly uh, loved and famous and successful and brilliant writer um, and I thought it was really interesting just to start the story with something which feels very very 2021 which is a trans story and so that in a way was the model and all the way through I was trying to find people from the 50s 60s 70s 80s who made our intellectual furniture, our landscape internally, what it is today. And therefore, I was looking for um, different fields. There's a, there's a lot about uh, sexuality in the book, but there's also an awful lot about how we work and tr trade unions and politics too. And uh, I think the focus on the like the non-politician, you know, people, it's not about the politics necessarily. 
when it's politics with a small p. It's not about Westminster ups and downs and uh, ins and outs and that sort of thing, but about those those people who, who are having an impact on our society from different fields, whether it's sport or music and uh, and that sort of thing. And I think I thought, uh, yeah, I thought that that. Um, I hadn't really thought about because I remember because it was it was only last year, wasn't it, that Jan Morris uh, died, and obviously I sort of revisited that story then. But to use that as the start of your book, you're right. It does feel like this is a live conversation we're having right now in 2021, and yet the, the story began when uh, the Queen uh, first took the throne. Who 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 do you think if you had to pick one person? And I suppose this is a really difficult uh, thing. If you are transported back uh, 70 odd years to the South Bank to meet. Uh, the the Andrew Marr uh, of the day, who's the one person who you would say uh, is going to you, know, you really need to focus on the, the um, ultimate Elizabethan, the ultimate Elizabethan. That is really difficult. Um, I'm going to take a, a slightly strange answer, I think, and Pete uh, pick out Anita Roddick. So Anita Roddick is sort of Jewish Italian immigrate by by background and origin. And she is the person who founds the body shop. And I would pick her because, um, A, she reminds us how much we owe to people who've come here relatively recently um, and not understood the rules and therefore done things differently. But also, if you look around and think how ubiquitous and everywhere is the sort of connection between business and modern ethics, environmentalism, uh, not being cruel to animals, um, treating um, your workers decently, even if they're in China, all of that. All businesses endlessly talk about their ethical investments, and it's all around us. And this all starts from one woman who is struggling to survive uh, after her husband has gone on a long um, sort of journey to discover himself, riding a horse across South America, and she has got very little money and very little to do. And so she starts this shop selling um, beauty treatments out of reusable containers in a tiny little street in the back streets of Brighton. And it grows to become a global empire. But more important than that, I think she changes the way um, that so many businesses conduct themselves. This idea that a business ought to be in some sense ethical is so all around us now that we take it for granted, but it starts with her and it starts in a particular place in the back streets of Brighton. So that, you know, that's uh, perhaps an unusual example, but I, I think she's a very, very good case of somebody who never did normal politics, but put uh, ethical treatment of animals, proper treatment of the people making the products all around the world, environmental concerns, etc., absolutely at the heart of her business. And that's how most of us, one way or another, still think today. And actually, I suppose that that trend has gone from just being sort of businesses to now stars famous people celebrities you know bob yeah. geldof is more famous for his uh you know there's no disrespect to the boomtown rats but more famous for his work with with live aid and uh and that sort of thing than necessarily for the music david attenborough too you know accomplished tv presenter but you know it's his campaigning on climate change and again most recently marcus rashford probably if you went back to your your people 70 years ago on the south bank they wouldn't expect their footballers to be you know, social campaigners in the same way. Do you think that that's been part of the shift too? That that we expect, we, you know, as well as businesses become more ethical and you know recognise their social impact. Actually, the same is true now of celebrities, as we would have called them. I think that's absolutely right, and I think you know you. T well, you mentioned Bob Geldof there, and what I say in the book 
is that he's kind of laughed at and sneered at quite a lot. I mean, um, Private Eye called him Saint Bob all the way through. But actually, if you look at the number of people whose lives he saved by what he did with Live Aid, you know, he is quite close to Saint Bob. And I think it's very important in a book like this to include alongside the many villains, kind of heroes who have made a big change. And uh, he would be he would be a good and very unlikely kind of foul-mouthed Dublin example. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? That in the past, you know, the, the first Elizabethan age and other historical figures, it's tended to have been lots of people, for, you know, the people who would get written about and remembered are all from a very similar sort of social <laughs> strata, if you like. Uh, and actually, it's such an amazing collection that you've you've put together, um, uh, which covers you know people from far more backgrounds, races, geography, and and all of that. Yeah, it's uh, you have to be very careful that it doesn't just become one mini biography after another. So I've tried to cluster it together with themes and also look at the big sort of some of the big um, successes and failures. The underlying, I suppose, the underlying argument is that um, after the war, when, when Churchill was still there as the Queen's first prime minister, um, he was warning about huge opportunities and huge dangers um, in, in the sort of century or so ahead. And by and large, um, the British had two big projects, I think, the, for, the, for, the, for roughly the centre and, and right. It was to find an alternative big, big global role that replaced the Commonwealth. So we were still a really, really important country around the world. And I think in all the European agonies and the various wars we fought, we failed to do that. And on the left, um, the big project was to create the world's most generous and successful welfare society, as it were. And by and large, after what happened in the 70s and the winter of discontent, um, that's failed as well. And I think the, argue, the reason that both eventually failed is that we didn't actually earn enough um, as a country um, in our economy to give ourselves the kind of power and the lifestyle that we thought we deserved. So in a sense, it's a slightly downbeat story. But in that, there are lots and lots of examples of people uh, making things for better, inventing extraordinary devices that change the world. You know, the British uh, contribution to computing is extraordinary. And you've got everything from, um, you know, the jet engine to the hovercraft to... Um, uh, British breakthroughs in in science and medicine and maths. You've got all the huge cultural effect of everyone from Dusty Springfield to the Beatles. So there's a lot to cheer about in these books. And I was very concerned not to produce a kind of slightly doleful, pessimistic litany of everything getting worse. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, by and large, I'm a chirpy, glass half full kind of person. And it's, well, we blimey, we need that uh, in the world right now. Andrew, it's been lovely to speak to you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. Matt, it's been a delight. Thank you very much indeed. Andrew Marr there. And uh, Elizabethans, A History of How Modern Britain Was Forged is out now in paperback if you want a sort of glass half full uh, approach to what's going on in the world right now. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.